0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome, everyone, today. I'm really looking forward to our guest... Melissa Fitzgerald and Scott Taroki. You might remember Melissa from her great acting job in the fabulous show, West Wing. They have embarked, she and Scott, on a wonderful program all about our veterans called Veterans Treatment Courts and Justice for Vets. I stand behind and with and support of all of our veterans. I'm also a military mom with two children serving in the United States Army. So I'm really looking forward to today's guest, Melissa Fitzgerald and Scott Trioki, and the fabulous work that they've been doing for our veterans. This podcast is called Superman's Not Coming because we need people to step up and become the agent of change they want to see. Most of you will know Melissa Fitzgerald for her incredible work as Carol on the West Wing. Hello. (laughs) You did love the West Wing. What a great show. Inspired by Martin Sheen. Melissa left Hollywood to champion justice system reform, first as Senior Director of Justice for Vets, where she led the expansion of veterans treatment courts, and today, she serves as Director of the Advancing Justice Initiative. I am also incredibly honored to have Major Scott Taroki, United States Army, retired with us today. And, and Scott, uh, I, I'm going to share here. We've been talking a little before I got to my intro. I'm a military mom, and I, I'm going to say to you thank you for your service, your work. I, again, I might start crying, but thank you for being here um, and for everything that you have done. Thank you so and, much. Scott is Division Director for Justice for Vets. He served in the U.S. Army Reserves and the Rhode Island Army National Guard for 21 years. Scott is a licensed behavioral health clinician and has an employment background rooted in treatment and criminal justice. I welcome both of you to Superman's Not Coming and to both of you. I am... Honored, um, somewhat speechless, very excited, very passionate about the work that you do, the work that you've done, and being here today. So
2: welcome. Um, What an honor for me to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's an honor for us to be here with you. And, um, you know, obviously I've been a longtime fan of yours and the work that you've done and your inspiration to get all of us to get up because I guess Superman isn't coming.
1: <laughs> so. No, Superman's not. But guess what? We're here and a whole lot exactly. of that can uh, be activated and deployed, if you will, Scott, and troops right. on the ground to make these change and be here.
2: So and in with a way, that, that's better, because there's more yeah. of us than there are supermen. <laughs> it's time to mobilize. That's right. Um, having said that, uh, and I'm
1: going to really try to be very quiet. I'm so passionate about this. As I said, I'm a military mom, and I have seen from another side uh, my son returning home from Afghanistan. Uh, my daughter was military police. They're both out now. What they've gone through, the misunderstanding uh, about their, the, the, the deep, deep, deep emotion and mental issues, and I don't want to use the word issues, but we don't want to talk about it. Um, the fear, the angst, there's so much going on here that I am just dying to learn what I can do as a military mom and other moms and people listening, the work that you do, how you got here, how it changes. So I'm going to just be pretty quiet and let you start exactly what you're doing, how it became to be and how all of us can get involved so we can help more returning veterans.
2: Would you like us to talk about our personal journeys to get to doing this work? Would you like to, us to start with talking about the actual course? I think goes? the personal journeys are,
1: are definitely important. I mean, because you've made a big switch, Melissa, from West Wing and Hollywood into this type of service. How
2: did you do that and why the switch? Um, well there are a lot of different reasons I think and you know, I was I was trying to be succinct about it, but but one of them I I, I think is I, I I got divorced and I went through a very dark uh period and it was while I was on the West Wing and somebody very wise said to me to keep a gratitude journal every night and write three things down for which you are grateful and no repeating <laughs> so the first you know week or so wasn't that tough and then i had to dig pretty deep and i you know i remember thinking like i have a pencil to write this list and a piece of paper to write this list and there are a lot of places in the world that don't have that and ultimately that took me to uganda where i did a theater program with former abducted child soldiers and other children displaced by the brutal rebel war there and then made a documentary about that experience and one of the the men that we worked on the documentary with was making a documentary about returning, uh, um, wanted to make one about returning American veterans who were struggling after experiencing the trauma of war. And I, you know, got on board to help produce that. And that, you know, the Uganda experience really opened my eyes to the effects of war on communities. And, um, The the working on Halfway Home, the other documentary, really opened my eyes to the deep struggle that some of our veterans experience when they return home. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the vast majority of our veterans are strengthened by their military service and return home as as civic assets and leaders in our communities. And many are struggling. And um, I think we need to be there for them and for their families when they come home. And it was just interesting at the same time that that was going on, Martin Sheen, I, I lost a dear friend to addiction, um, and Martin Sheen knew that, and he asked me to come speak at the National Association of Drug Court Professionals National Conference in 2011. <laughs> and um, so I, I went to DC and I spoke with Martin and um, I was really, um, Inspired by the people that I met, I mean, here were judges and court staff and activists who were all fighting to put treatment courts within reach of people who need them, and it just seemed like a whole, you know, different way of 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 justice and real justice. Mm-hmm. And um, and I got involved as a supporter on the side, and then in 2013, I remember I was sitting on my, I was sitting in my apartment in in Los Angeles, and I my. I was talking on the phone with the then head of NADCP and he said, we're looking for a new senior director of justice for vets. And I remember saying, if I were a veteran, I'd throw my hat in the ring. This is so important, especially right now. And then he called back and said, were you serious? And I said, yeah. And I I, I honestly don't know why I said that other than I felt that, and I still feel that we all owe our veterans and their families a debt of gratitude. And I think that that gratitude has to be expressed through actions not just absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. you're on a calling uh really uh i, I can uh, feel that from you uh, that you're you're compelled you're called to do this uh and the importance of it uh, you, the two first of all the courage that you've had to come out and do that it's it's not easy because these are painful conversations um and you know what sometimes i think we want to avoid what's going to hurt us what's yeah. going to make us cry that we just we want to turn our head to, but we can't. And and I I I really do understand that. And I want to say to you, it, it's 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 hard, and the courage you've had to come out. And before I go any further, you've you've got two documentaries.
2: Yeah, you tell you, us about you, those and where people listening can find them. Well, the Uganda documentary is called After Coney: Staging Hope, and it's about a theater program that. I had been doing with other actors in Los Angeles here for at risk teens. And we took a version of that program and uh, some of the facilitators from the Los Angeles project came with me to Uganda and we worked with former abducted child soldiers to implement that theater program to help them share their stories with their community and their voices. And, um, and that is, I think it's on Amazon prime at this point. And then, um, and then the other one is halfway home and it, Profile several returning veterans um, in, from several several different eras. So Max Cleland very openly shares his experiences uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder and and then also several other veterans from Iraq, Afghanistan. And, you know, one man in particular, um, Tommy Riemann, who um, I got to know during, because of the making of Halfway Home, you know, he was... silver star recipient and uh you know when you 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 hear in 2003 he was in Iraq and his convoy came under heavy enemy fire and he um used his body as a human shield refused to be shot twice 11 shrapnel wounds refused to be carried off until all his men were carried off and he um he was a Silver Star recipient, as I mentioned. And, and in 2007, he was acknowledged by President Bush in the State of the Union address, received a several-minute standing ovation, action figure after him, video game. And inside, he was struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder and quietly struggling. And again, I think you know what you and I and Scott were talking about, about this you know, not talking about it and, and the shame around um, struggling and uh, and he uh, attempted to end his own life by uh, after a night of heavy drinking and pills by driving his truck into a tree and thank goodness he survived and he was facing charges and that was at the exact same time that um, I was um, the exact same time that I was uh, talking about coming to justice for vets and I called him to ask do you think that I should do this job or should we find somebody else? And he said, no, I think you should do it. And I'm going to help you. It's too late for me. I'm going to go to jail, but it's not too late for my brothers and sisters and I will do whatever I can and be by your side. And he has been a real champion. And what's kind of remarkable and magical about that is that he was able to come to the first ever veterans treatment court conference where we screened halfway home and they were just opening a veterans treatment court in North Carolina, about an hour and a half from where he lived. He was able to get his charges transferred and enter into that veterans treatment court. And, um, about a year and change later, uh, I was sitting there watching him graduate from that court and, uh, he has not looked back. He is an incredible person. He's still working on behalf of veterans. He has helped us a tremendous amount spread the word about the work that we're doing. And, um, You know, that's just one of the many stories. I think there are over 15,000 veterans today who are receiving life-saving treatment instead of being behind bars. And I do not believe that justice is best served by having men and women like Tommy Riemann behind bars. I believe justice is best served when Tommy and his brothers and sisters receive the treatment that they have earned, that they need, and that they deserve. And, you know... Scott and I talked about this a little bit yesterday, but, you know, no matter what you care about veterans treatment courts and treatment courts in general sort of address everything. They reduce crime, they save taxpayer dollars and they restore families. And they also honor the service of our veterans who have sacrificed so much for us. Um, So,
1: um, the the veterans court, uh, there's a couple of things that, that I'm going to ask you uh, as a military mom, um, how that came to be. You know, I, I've seen my own kids, you know, where the distrust um, between a civilian court and they know military court or how they feel they're not being heard because they're home. The, the biggest issue that the veterans face when they come home um is isolation, misunderstanding, PTSD, the, the mental issues, uh, treatment, uh,
2: addiction issues, and how that court came to be? Um, well, Judge Robert Russell, <laughs> who is a brilliant, uh, he, was, he is a drug court and mental health court judge. And this was in 2008, prior to the launch of the first Veterans Treatment Court, because he launched it, um, Judge Robert Russell was seeing more and more veterans appearing before him in his courtroom who were not responding to the program the way he thought they could and should. And he, there was one man in particular who was a Vietnam-era veteran who was um, not doing well in the mental health court program. He was showing up disheveled, not looking Judge Russell in the eye, not meeting the marks um, of the program. And Judge Russell happened to have two Vietnam-era veterans on his staff. And he asked them to go into the hallway and just talk to him veteran to veteran. And he said shortly after the gentleman returned to the courtroom and stood in front of Judge Russell at parade rest. And when Judge Russell asked him, are you ready to accept the help that this court is offering you? He said, sir, yes, sir. Didn't look back. Completed the program with flying colors, and uh, I think that was the light bulb for Judge Russell uh, to to launch the first veterans treatment court. And you know S- Scott can speak to this more in depth, and and because Scott's a veteran too. But there is something about having all an uh, all veteran only docket where. They can be together with their brothers and sisters and traveling around the country speaking to veterans. I have heard time and again the exact same words in this courtroom, I got my unit back. And there was one time I was in a courtroom, I think it was in Seattle, and a gentleman who was in the final phase of his program, because these programs are about 18 months. And um, he was in the final phase of his program, so he no longer had to go weekly. He only had to go once a month, but he came every week. And the judge asked him, why are you coming every week? You only have to come once a month. You're almost done. You're, You're doing so well. And he said, oh, I'm not coming for me. I'm coming for my brothers and sisters. I want all of them to know that somebody here cares about them and has their back. And um, and he said, and I intend on becoming a mentor in this program. And, um, you know, Scott is doing such an incredible job training the courts and also training mentors. Um, and he can speak a little bit more about that too. But that's something that I think is a remarkable uh, piece of what veterans treatment courts do because they are a veteran-only docket, but you've got an interdisciplinary court team, which is made up of the judge, um, you know, uh, prosecution defense counsel probation parole treatment is part of that team, and I think that 's critical critical and then you 've also got the mentor volunteer veterans from the community who serve as mentors to their brothers and sisters and then you also have the VA as part of that team you 've got the veterans justice outreach specialists so that they can connect the veteran directly to the treatment that they have earned um, through the va and and um, you know so there there are two ways which I think are very special, special things to veterans treatment courts. And that is the veteran only docket. And then also these wraparound services that are offered. And we call it a one stop shop for veterans, veterans treatment courts. Well, it's
1: extremely unique. And, and yeah, I know, uh, S- Scott will will jump in here. And, and what an interesting position. I mean, having served in the United States Army and licensed behavioral <laughs> therapist. Um, Scott, I mean, I think so many of us don't understand, we can't see emotions, we can't see mental health, and I don't know if that makes it less tangible for us on how to know to come in and help, but what the vets are experiencing, and I I can only imagine how important this court has become to them, or when they come home feeling lost, or feeling like they don't connect, and what they've been through, and then what may feel, as Melissa said, shame or embarrassment that uh, an addiction has arisen. Uh, tell us all about that, because I, what a, really what a significant change this would be for all of our servicemen and women, and how all of us can help them have a better return home and a better life.
0: It's, that's, that's excellent. You know, there's just, there's so much to this that we could not, we cannot cover in this podcast. Unfortunately. I know, but you know, it's just so just, just to give you a little bit of background um, and you know, I, I'm not someone who wants to talk about himself. Never. <laughs> so, but just a little bit of a background. Um, <laughs> I was, I am still um, a behavioral health clinician. Uh, my time in the military was in the national guard. So, I was in charge of units back in Rhode Island, and I knew just about everybody in the Rhode Island Army national guard. It's the smallest state in our country. Um, I was I was working I was I was working in the prison system, the jail system actually. I come from community behavioral health, but my my weekend status was the National Guard, etc and um, you know I was an officer, uh, I volunteered to go on a deployment. I was working in the jail system, piece of cake. I know bad things happen when you're deployed I know um, it's challenging on the family that, you know, they'll deal with those issues because, you know, families are strong and, you know, they're all one way and they're all, you know, in my world, you know, they're all picture, picture perfect, et cetera. Um, so I, I volunteered deployed, um, back in 2003 to 2004 in Afghanistan. It was pretty early on in, uh, uh, in the war back there. And, not not to have a side, sidebar note, but the war in Afghanistan will eventually end um, because uh, eventually the sun will probably burn out. And so the planet went, but that's not my quote. That's somebody else's quote. I have a little yeah. feeling about that. But I had returned from Afghanistan and uh, was working in the prison system, specifically as a social worker in jail. And for about three or four years, I just kept everything in, did my job, continued to do my National Guard job. Um, I was kind of above the fray of soldiers that were having problems. That was them. That wasn't me. Um, until about four years upon returning home, I found myself having an explosive episode with my family so much so though, that, uh, I couldn't, they, they didn't recognize me. I saw the look in my wife's eyes. She didn't know who I was. I saw the look in my, my little boy's eyes. He was about three. I think at the time, he didn't know who I was. I saw my daughter, And I saw three individuals that didn't recognize who this potential monster could be uh, that was speaking to them at the time. Um, So it was there that I realized at a particular moment in time that I was not above the fray, that if I kind of looked at what was happening over the past three years, I was drinking a lot of alcohol, no family history of alcohol use. I was getting pulled over by the police who would oftentimes let me go because they recognized me because we, were, we served together in the National Guard. We we're all MP buddies. Um, yeah. one, one officer, you know, I'm, I'm sharing this on a podcast. I don't even think my wife knows these stories. You know, one officer, the classic, let me just drive you home, sir. You know, you know, you know where to go. Um, so I did that for about three or four years. I played that game. Um, inside, I felt as though I didn't belong at all in this world. I didn't feel as though I belonged, you know, to my family, just like that thing I quoted earlier on um, when we were talking earlier about. How, how there's a good significant portion of the veteran population that does feel isolated. Um, not all, but they are out there. Um, I was one of those guys. And just by the grace of God go I, I did not get arrested. I got enabled probably. Um, I was able through the help of a vet center uh, t- to address my issues. Um, and to this day, I still have them in my phone. Um, so what I did notice, though, once I addressed my issues working in the jail system is I would assess individuals coming in every night for psychiatric stability, for lack of better wordings. When individuals come into a jail setting, there is the possibility of suicide. And Mm -hmm. so there's that potential. So I would assess them and I would do my questions, et cetera. But one thing I noticed is that there was a huge uptick in sweat when I would ask the question, have you ever served in the military? I'd be getting a lot of, yes, yes. Um, I'd be getting a lot of those responses. So I started keeping track of those. This was about 2008, 2009, maybe. And boy, it was probably about 12 to 14 percent of the Rhode Island inmate population had served in the military. Folks that really didn't have much records or any records at all um, we were seeing. So I started to track that. And, you know, the big word that I came up with at that time that I learned was concomitantly. You know, you could have folks that are all working on these incredible things individually and then together, it's the same issue they're all trying to address. Mm. So I saw that in the jail system. I saw that in the court system. Um, and at the time, there was a judge in Rhode Island who was interested. She had gone out and t- spoken with Robert Russell out in Buffalo, and she was very interested in the possibility of Rhode Island having this type of model. Um, I, I knew about it. I knew it was occurring, but... In my own job in the jail, I had gotten permission to actually go to court and try to intercede as a social worker um, to actually try to get these folks into diversion instead of the jail for the night. So it's just amazing. Uh, you know. I, I, I will tell you, I am a very spiritual person. I believe in interconnectedness. I believe things just do not happen randomly. Um, we teach in the military and, you know, Soldiers, service members, excuse me, ought to be independent. But the biggest thing they also teach in the military that we lose track of is interdependence. And therein lies the key with these VTC programs that we're going to say, we recognize you as an individual and we respect you as an individual service member. However, we also want to tell you, we respect you about in regard to the interdependence and how we together are going to help each other get through this, through this system. And I think we said earlier, we want to be able to bring home the message of you are not alone. You are not isolated. There is some person, my biggest thing I'll never forget that happened. And I know I'm probably going off a little bit. I apologize. One of the biggest things that occurred to me is I was at a party, a family gathering, and I was managing the bar at that family gathering. No one was speaking to me. No one was talking to me. I was pouring the drinks to everybody. I had actually isolated myself by saying I'm not going to agree with. And talk to any of these people. I was going to pour their drinks. on I was a bartender, um, but there was this one fellow who came up to me, and uh, he's an old fella. He's a Vietnam veteran. He had served years ago, clearly. And uh, he walked up to me, leaned against the wall, and I was at the bar, and he said, "I want you to know that I'm the only one who gets you,"
2: <laughs>
0: and he just walked away. And before I could even respond, you know, I, I get emotional. I you know, went to my room, went to the room, went right. the and all that. But I was just, I, I'll never forget that because I always, I always want to be able to do that, carry that forward. I always want to be able to, regardless of whatever position I'm in in life, I always, and the good thing is we're able to do this at a national level. I always want to be able to just tell whoever that individual is, you're not alone. I want to carry that message to somebody. And this is a way to do that. And now that's a way to teach other people to carry that message to somebody.
1: Well, absolutely, and it's understanding. And again, as military mom and my kids came home, especially my son, I didn't know what to do. I didn't understand. I really want to ask you, I haven't been to war. I cannot even imagine what the men and women have seen. And part of coming home is, yes, that trauma, but that you are also, my understanding from hearing my children is that's your family. When you come home, let alone having trauma, you're now separated from that family. Is that a large part of where this the deep loneliness and or isolation comes? You've lost that family in war, or they've come home and they're dealing with their issues. And is that along with the PTSD and and what you've seen a more part of where that this I don't know that the 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 real sense of loneliness and despair is, is it lost family? They're, yeah. they're brothers and sisters.
0: I would say that I, I, I would imagine that's absolutely a key. And um, I, I think it's, I think it's a, you know, we can, I think it may be a, a, a somewhat a loss of sense of self of who I once was, you know, and, you know, we can all look at pictures and, and I think whenever an individual experiences a traumatic incident or an individuals that have complex trauma, a series of traumatic incidents throughout their entire life, the big piece that's always missing is that sense of self. The person is, if, it, if it's a significant one or two loss, lack of better wording that would be seen, post-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to life history of uh, um, trauma, if it is that, then it can be addressed. But even that, you've lost a sense of self. And so how do we restore the sense of self? And the person is, maybe not be using my phrase that I'm using, of course not, but or maybe they are, I don't know, who, who might have they, 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 are, they, are, they are questioning, who am I now? Something has changed within me. Who am I now? And sometimes, oftentimes, whoever I have become, how can I ever expect that my significant other or a family member, or my father will accept me for who I, who I am today? And how do I explain to them that this is who I am today? So there's just a whole uh, perplexity, a a ton of issues. The good news is there is a very good prognosis for post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. And it really has to address, it really comes down to addressing the cognitive thinking, the the, the distortions. We do, the individuals that have post-traumatic stress disorder have thinking that does need to be challenged and questioned. So if someone thinks, well, you know, everyone's out to get me, Scott, Bill, Sally, why do you feel that way? To challenge that person, that's what really good therapists do. They will challenge you. There's some great treatment modalities today that the VA has. Cognitive processing therapy is fantastic. It challenges your cognitions. EMDR Mm -hmm. is another fantastic one I'd suggest folks look at. Prolonged exposure therapy is very good for some individuals, not so much for other individuals. But there are a ton of post-traumatic stress disorder therapies that are very effective with returning veterans or anyone. Who has a trauma history. That's the great news about all of this, um, honestly. It's very treatable and prognosis is very good.
1: But the veterans treatment courts are the ones really capturing and seeing that. Where did we fail in the civil courts with all of our returning
0: Oh, i don't I'm so well,
2: I mean, I I, that
0: one. Uh, Melissa?
2: <laughs> no i, I what I, I i can say what i see i i, I don't think i have an right. answer to that large question but i can say what i see and i think the success of treatment courts and treatment courts have been around since i think 1989 and they have been one of the most successful justice models in the history of our country and one of those reasons is because they don't they don't treat everyone exactly the same. People who come into a treatment court are treated as individuals, whether it's a drug court, a DUI court, a family drug court, juvenile drug court, veterans treatment court. Those modalities are adapting as we as we see need. And um, I think that veterans in many ways are really educating the rest of the nation, leading the way on how do we... Right provide trauma-informed therapy? How do we acknowledge that in the courts? And, you know, so many of the veterans that we've talked to, and also civilians who are in the other treatment court programs, they say it was the first time in my life because many, you know, this is many of the people that go through treatment courts, they have been in the system repeatedly. So they, they're like, I have never been treated as an individual. It was the first time in my life in a treatment court where someone called me by my name and not a number. And wow. somebody was asking me what I needed. How can we help you? What And... And people meeting once a week. These treatment courts are really incredible because you've got the treatment court team working on behalf of the individual success. And that treatment court team meets every week to talk about each person that is in that treatment court program at the time. And you've got, you know, as I mentioned before, you've got treatment, probation, parole, pro, um, prosecution, defense counsel, and it's non-adversarial. So everybody is there. Helping provide everything that's needed for the success of the individual. And I think that that is a a big part of the success.
0: And it really falls upon that responsivity that you nailed, Melissa. When you went through the the individuals involved in that person's treatment, you really talked about that you really, it was that interconnectedness that, you know, we said earlier, It's, it's that you're not by yourself, that everyone is looking out for each other here. And that responsivity, you know, to address all those factors, we, we don't see in, tradition, in traditional courtroom. I know I, I never saw it. I was, I was a deputy director for pretrial services also, another role, and you never saw that in a traditional courtroom. You only see that in these, these treatment courts. And that's what we do wonderfully, we nail it, I really believe. And I think
2: we're learning more and more all the time about mental health issues, about um, substance use disorders. We are learning so much, and as we learn more, and I think as every family is experiencing this, every family is, I mean, I really honestly think you would be hard pressed to find an individual whose life has not been touched in some way. I know that mine certainly has been very deeply and lost some people that I've loved, to addiction, mental health disorders, and and which is a, a terrible, terrible thing. Perhaps the silver lining, if there is one, is that we will have less shame around it, less stigma attached to it, right. and talk about it and be open about it. But um, well, this is such a, <clears throat> a, a, a glorious model
1: that I think many courts could clearly follow. You know, I talk about Superman's not coming. And i talking here today specifically about the veterans, the Veterans Treatment Court. This is an issue that affects all of us. And we have operated under a court system or politically, federally state at some idea of how things will work and when they began, they worked fine, but there's such a shift. Now what worked then isn't going to work for tomorrow. And this, this court is such a, an inspiration to look at that other courts need to follow and where it is we've misstepped and not be afraid. I think we're so afraid that because how we set something up, it doesn't work anymore, that we're failures. Nothing could be further from the truth. We've changed. We, as, as the law, we can reform antiquated laws. We we can change things. We're a different society to make it different going forward. And, and to deal with what I think we don't want to deal with is emotions, yeah. feelings, compassion, understanding. And we need to share more of that, I believe, in our courts. And I think this program the veterans treatment program your work melissa scott your work this is really the future of how we need to go and instead of kicking the can down the road burying our head in the sand this is transparency this is in your face this is what's happening it's going to hurt your heart but i think we need to go there to move forward So we can begin to change these problems, especially what you're seeing with our vets returning home and these deep, deep, deep wounds and a better way to help them. And in turn, we're helping everyone And, and talk about interdependence and looking at ourselves. What I opened up with here, Melissa, your courage, Scott, your courage to push through those things that we don't want to I am beyond impressed. Uh, I will support and advocate for you in any way that I can for all veterans as a veteran's mom. But that this is clearly a unique model for, for our justice system that could be a significant reform and change for the better.
2: Well, we agree and we are dedicating our lives to it because we believe in it so strongly. And we feel like there there are bright spots in the justice system and treatment courts are those bright spots. And I think we need to make sure that they are available to everyone who needs them and that there is treatment available in the community for everyone who needs treatment. And, and through the courts to get that treatment. And, um, you know, if if we can, we would love for people to come visit our website and learn more about, you know, it's justiceforvets.org. And you can also follow us on social media and, um, and learn more and hear some of the incredible success stories of veterans who are going through these programs and hear sometimes from their family members. I mean, that is also equally inspiring to hear from from children who say, you know, I, I got my mom back, I got my dad. back. Oh my back. God! And how I important mean, is that? Yes. There's nothing more important than that. And I, I, I mean, I, honestly, and I think we sometimes forget that when we're talking about numbers and saving money and and recidivism rates, all of which are improved by these courts. But you know, I think what motivates—well, I'm going to speak for me, but I know it's true for Scott too. But <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> Are the people that we meet, and right. I think you know it's it 's been a particularly challenging time uh I think for everybody <laughs> right now we 're all isolated in our own homes we 're you know, doing this uh via um, you know virtually and I, um, you know i think it 's been a particularly hard time for people who participate in the courts um, who are participants you know it's the isolation of that um, is really pointing out and highlighting how much we need each other. Oh, so much. And we really need each other. And I know for me, there's nothing in my life I've ever done that's been worth anything by myself. And um, I'm so lucky that I get to work with such remarkable people like Scott Taroki and the other people that we get to work with. Um, It is a team. And I think that's the other thing that these courts show us is that it is working together. In a non-adversarial environment mm-hmm. where we can help everybody rise, you know, we say when one person rises out of addiction and finds recovery, we all rise. Absolutely, I believe that that is. So you
1: know, and it's never an "I"; it's always a "we," right? And I have always worried so much that we, we, because we're talking about an issue that makes us feel weak, or we feel we're perceived as weak, or less than, um, we don't embrace vulnerabilities. We don't embrace that insecurity. And it represents weakness. I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think when you represent and you grab a hold of those fears that what you think is your weakness and your own judgment of yourself, when you embrace that that's where real strength and courage comes from. And it's so hard to look at it. it and I love the, the the veterans treatment course. Are they in every state in the US? Can you tell me well, how many there are?
0: Just just about every state in the US. There's okay. a couple. Um, but let me tell you, um, we have, I want to say this, well over 420, 450, I want to say, that are out there right now. And mm-hmm. literally, it's a, it's that judge or it's that prosecutor or maybe it's even that defense counsel that says, I want to start a program in this jurisdiction. Our motto at Justice for Vets, for Vets is we will not rest until there's a Veterans Treatment Court in reach of every veteran in need. So we want to at least have that opportunity in every jurisdiction for that individual to go to one of these treatment court programs.
2: And we have resources on our website that helps. And, you know, what Scott does, which is so remarkable, is trains the court's the staff. So that's, that's why it's going to be my next question. So tell, tell me about that. <laughs> that. No, I'm glad, glad you brought it up my next question. That's one of the big things that we do at our organization, the national association of drug court professionals, which I know is a mouthful NADCP. We train treatment courts across the country. We have faculty and staff all over the country. And Scott is, you know, in charge of the, the Veterans Treatment Court uh, Division, Justice for Vets, that does that. And and in addition to that, we have mentors, volunteer veterans from the community. So you know, I would say to everybody out there, find out if there's a Veterans Treatment Court in your community. And if you feel that you need one, if there are veterans in, com- in your community, go to our website, learn how you can advocate for that. And if you are a veteran who would, in your heart, find it that you would maybe would want to be a, a, a mentor, find out if there's a way for you to do that through your, your local veterans treatment court.
0: Yeah. I'm going to be doing
2: me. that today.
0: <laughs> they they, they can write to me directly and we put them in that direction as to what court, they, what programs are out there that they could go to. So, you know, that's the great thing about the veteran community is they want to give back. They still want to serve deep inside. They must serve. And so right. that is offered. That opportunity is offered through these local VTC programs. Um, we, My my particular division, we we train foundational training. So if a judge or someone in that jurisdiction wants to start one, we'll we'll provide them with the foundational training. We provide existing veterans treatment court programs that are currently running with what we call refresher or operational tune-up trainings. We provide technical assistance trainings to individual programs that may say, I love my programs, but something's kind of a little off that I want to address and enhance. We provide the mentoring component itself, the individual mentors with trainings. We provide the coordinators of those mentoring components with trainings. We provide online courses, online sessions on trauma-informed care that you can go to our website and check out through our partnership that we developed with the PsychArmor Institute. So we have tons of trainings within our division. NADCP has tons of trainings. Within the whole division overall. Um, so we're always looking to advance the cause of establishing these treatment courts throughout the entire country because they are they address. And you know, we talk we talked a lot today about diagnosis. Well, undercurrent of that, and we also talk about an undercurrent of criminal charges too. Uh, but what's fantastic about these programs, these treatment court programs, is they address the individual beyond the diagnosis because real recovery occurs beyond the diagnosis. It's important to have that diagnosis or to treat, excuse me, it's important to treat that diagnosis. That's why we put the label on the, the, the the concern, the issue, the challenge, the disorder, whatever it is, that's important. So that we get it right as to the, the therapies or the interventions that we provide. But real recovery is, is first addressing those and recognize the individual beyond the diagnosis. How are they connected with others? Again, mm-hmm. that person does not have a sense of purpose, then why bother? And that's what these programs are able to restore. They restore a sense of purpose. They restore a sense of the person's self, who their self-concept is. And if they didn't have a self-concept before, it develops one and points the person Thank in the you. right direction so um,
2: right we have five hours to tell you all the stories right. of the. I know story. You, it's so crazy oh, i could stay here for it's miraculous
1: i mean was well, so, so i i didn't yeah oh here we go see so, yeah. that that's what i said it's been a miracle i've been this quiet um because i i know so we could talk forever so i'm gonna kind of like wrap us up i i have a real quick question on the veterans treatment courts so a veteran um has uh, an issue or gets into trouble correct If they're veterans, they can get into the Veterans Treatment Court, correct? If
0: if these programs are, if these court programs are. If it's available.
1: available, Okay.
0: And the other piece is the criteria to go into that program is oftentimes created or established by that treatment court program, specifically the prosecutor's office. They're the ones that. Okay. And and also there's state statute too. A lot of these programs have. So there's 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 a few nuances to them. But if the program is available, the answer would be yes.
2: And okay, the and always has the choice. They don't have to go into this program. And I think correct. that's important. It is, okay. a it is an option if they meet the criteria. And the,
1: the, the person in the, the VTC, the Veterans Treatment Court, is a
2: judge mediator? Who is presiding over this the court? Judge. Uh, He's the the court. judge. The judge leads the interdisciplinary court team that we talked okay. about earlier, and they meet. You know, prior and treatment gives their assessment of how the week went, and and Scott, interrupt me if you want to, <laughs> and, um, and they they talk about that prior to the court session. And often, in these programs, are approximately. And this is again because they're individualized programs, and different places, uh, you know, do things uh, differently depending on the individual needs, but average is around 18 months in one of these programs and in the first phase of the program often they appear weekly in front of the judge and the team and then uh you know as the phases they they can phase down and every other week and then you know at the end maybe
1: so in this 18 month treatment do they do they go to like a treatment facility or do they still stay where they live but they have to check in every week and attend the programs Mm
0: -hmm. So that depends upon the, the individual's needs. The majority are in outpatient treatment, usually okay. 90% of the time through the VA. Now, the the treatment provider at the VA all, all, will always, de- or treatment provider in the community, will always determine the level of need, the, that person's level of care. So if an individual does have a reoccurrence, um, then that individual, it can be recommended to the court that, Your honor, this individual has had a recurrence, and suggested this time that they receive an inpatient level of care, and so they still remain in the court program while they're receiving an the inpatient level of care. It's the reports are still the reports still go forward to the court saying the person's doing the person's doing well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but they stay. They the treatment drives the service. It's not the court does not drive the service. It's the treatment provider that drives what level of care that they're at.
2: Okay. So
0: they stay in the program. They're also monitored. This isn't a, this is what treatment court programs. Um, um, trust me. I, I worked in the judiciary. Treatment court programs are tough. Yeah. They require a lot. Of, <laughs> you don't know people how. And
2: drug and Alcohol testing. <laughs> I,
0: I have spoken to people all the time. I've witnessed myself where I will say, I've said to them in the past, Bill, why even do this treatment court program? Just, just, Take the deal and move on. <laughs> I, I, I play devil's advocate, you know. And they'll say, "You don't understand, Scott. This is helping me get my life together." Right? Now, I, it's my own motivational interviewing style. But the the point being is that individuals. You, you talked about courage before, Aaron. Individuals that volunteer to go into this program, they'll never admit it. They'll they'll, they'll feel like they're horrible and they'd be the worst decision and they're worthless, et cetera. Some will. I shouldn't speak generally. Truth of the matter is they are the most courageous individuals in the criminal justice system. They're the most courageous people outside of the criminal justice system to actually say, I want help. You know, um, I, I briefly shared my own personal issue there. Four years. I don't need anybody. Four years. And I'm a behavioral health clinician. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah,
1: and and there are, no, that's the hardest thing. You know, we're, we're the hardest on ourselves. We judge ourselves. And it's the true. hardest to look at the man in the mirror, if you will, or the woman in the mirror and be honest
2: that's right. With yourself. That's and tough. it takes a different kind of bravery to face that. And it Absolutely. does. exceptional kind of bravery. And, you know, I was talking to, to one individual who graduated a long time ago, but he was saying, you know, he, um, he ended up with physical injuries, returning home, was uh, prescribed uh, painkillers, uh, got addicted, mm-hmm. Then um, when he no longer could get the painkillers, he went to heroin and he got kicked out of his where he was living with his parents and he was living out of his car. He was forging checks and then got arrested from that and, and had been several times arrested. And he said, you know, I had the opportunity for a veteran's treatment court instead of facing some of the time I was facing. And he said, I wasn't planning on actually sticking with it. He said, I was going to do it just as long as just to get through it. And then I was going to go right back to using that was his plan. And he said, and then I got into that program and all of a sudden month two, things are getting pretty, you know, things are getting better. Month three, my life is looking pretty good. Month four. He's like, I'm not looking back. <laughs> now he is running programs for veterans. He speaks out on the need for veterans treatment courts. He's married. He has two children. He's oh, just fantastic. Wonderful a life that he's proud of and doing things that he's proud of. So right. I, don't, I don't care how you end up getting there, <laughs> you know, whether you're, you go in with, you know, I'm excited to do it. Or you're like, eh. <laughs> as long you're as awesome.
0: I, I, I don't mean to drop but I know that individual and I, I know, know he would not he'd be okay with us sharing that he works for us now mm-hmm. he provides consultation to the yeah. field for us. <laughs> What
2: yeah. better? Amazing. And there's be so many treatment. that end up working in the treatment field or working in the very court that saved their lives. Absolutely. They're so inspired and they're so grateful for the second chance that they've been given. They want to make sure that every single other person gets the same chance that they got. And, um, you know, I, I want to make one other point just as a civilian is that you know the men and women and the families that serve our nation in our, you know, in our military, our veterans, have given so much already. And I think that we as civilians also need to be there to show up and support them in real and tangible ways. And I, right now, the civilian-military divide in our nation has never been greater. And I think that isolation is something that we have to work on. And I don't feel that this is something that is a, a, a veteran problem. This is something that we work on together as a nation. And veterans are often leading the way um, for us. And I think that this is one of, those, one of those situations. And it's a real honor to get to work with men and women like Scott.
0: It's an honor to work with you, Melissa.
2: Well, I have to, to say, I can see both
1: of you on Zoom and people listening. I, I, I need to give you the visual of the passion and the enthusiasm and compassion and excitement on Melissa and, Scott's face. I, I hope you can hear it through their, their words. I will say this, and, and you know, I'm not one that, you know, keeps quiet about things, honestly. If I've seen two angels on this earth, I'm looking at them. And the difference you're making for so many. I cannot applaud you enough and send you certainly my love and support and any way we can get this out there so we can reach more. Melissa Fitzgerald, Major Scott Taroki, truly angels on this earth. Melissa and Scott, I can't thank you enough for the incredible work that you're doing. And if anybody, and I would hope everybody wants to find out more, you can go to justiceforvets.org. Melissa and Scott, thank you again. What an amazing job for our amazing veterans.
0: Thank you. Thank you, and God bless you and the work you do as well.